You're listening to the Salty Catholic Podcast. I am your host, N.S. Kesto. I'm salty because Jesus calls us to be the salt of the earth. But I'm also salty because I'm watching the culture move away from authentic, biblical Christian values, and it's dragging many Christians along with it. I'm salty because I'm seeing Catholics become lukewarm in their faith and not standing up to the secular world. So, I'm here to sprinkle in a little bit of flavor. All right, let's begin. Islam, the religion of peace. So we're told by Muslims and those who fear them like CNN. But some listening to this most likely live in an area where there is a pretty decent amount of Muslims that you maybe run into and strike a conversation, or maybe have a coworker who's Muslim and sometimes you chat about religion, or even some college campuses, you might have a classmate who's a Muslim, or Muslims will set up a booth um, to try to catch you know anybody walking by to try to sell the religion of Islam. And we need to be prepared to give an answer to some of the objections that may come up against Christianity. But why is it important to prepare to give an answer to an objection? So as Christians who love Christ, we seek to honor him. And the way we honor him is to obey his commands. One of his commands he gave us in Matthew chapter 28 is to make disciples of all nations. He says to go and teach them all that I have commanded you. Now we live in a world where there are a lot of people who don't believe in the Christian faith and have many objections to Christianity. So we need to always be prepared to not only preach the gospel, but to always be able to defend it. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls to account for the hope that is within you. Now, I'll do another episode where I will share what I believe to be the most effective way in defending your faith, um, even if you don't think you know as much as you should. But in this episode, I'm going to particularly focus on the common objections from Islam. Now, as Christians, we need to reach this group. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though they think they worship the same God that is revealed in Jesus Christ that we do, which they don't. Allah does not mean God. It's the name of their God. The Arabic word for God is Ilah, not Allah. For those who speak Arabic, when we say our profession of faith, we believe in one God. In Arabic, it's Nu'minu fi ilahin wahid, Ilah, not Allah. The word Allah is not found anywhere in the Arabic Bible or in the liturgy. It never was and it never will be. Now I know you're thinking many Christians from the Middle East today still use that word interchangeably to mean God. That's mainly because of, you know, centuries ago we were suckered into thinking that Muslims, you know, share and believe in the same true God that we do. And out of fear of being persecuted by the Muslims, we kind of just went along with it. The unfortunate consequence is that it kind of lingered into our everyday spoken language. And unfortunately, many Christians today uh, from the Middle East still use the name Allah to mean God. But I'm here to tell you, this is simply not true. Now, because the Quran presents objections to the Christian faith, Muslims will have an issue believing in Christianity. They have objections that every Christian must know so that we're able to know how to answer and respond to them. For example, the authority of the scripture, you know, how can we trust the scripture? How do we know that it has been preserved? You know, the Quran says the Bible's been corrupted. Or, you know, how, how can you believe that God became, uh, became flesh? Are you saying that God came out of a woman's womb? Or they'll have an issue with the idea of the Trinity because they believe God is one and us Christians are worshiping three gods. So those are some of the common objections that every Christian needs to be ready to answer. So let's start with the first one, that the Bible is corrupt. Now, how can we refute that? The best way to object to that is to do what St. Paul did in Acts 17, which is to quote the very source that the particular group he was preaching to believed to prove his point. So since Muslims have the Quran, 
I can appeal to the Quran to show a Muslim how that he must follow the Quran. And because he follows the Quran, he must accept the authority of the scripture. If they say something like, well, what are you using the Quran? You know, you have the Bible. You don't believe in the Quran. Why are you, why are you, you know, quoting the Quran? You can simply say, I'm quoting it because that's what you believe in. So I want to show you what your book says about my book. And one of the things I can do is quote the Quran, chapter 2, verse, uh, verses 40 and 41, where it says, O children of Israel, remember my blessings which I bestowed upon you and fulfill, the pledge, and fulfill your pledge to me, and I will fulfill my pledge to you and fear me and believe in what I revealed, confirming what is with you, and do not be the first to deny it. So Allah in the Quran is saying that you should you know, believe in what I revealed, confirming what is with you. He's talking about the, the Torah, the gospel. And then there's also Quran chapter 5 verses 43 to 48. Now the context before this is, this is, you know, supposedly Allah is talking about, you know, the Jews, they listen to all these liars and listen to other people who come to them and they distort all their beliefs and everything. And then in verse 43, he says this, But why do they come to you for judgment when they have the Torah, which is God's law, yet they turn away after from that? These are not believers. <laughs> so, Allah in their Quran is saying to the Jews, they have the Torah, why are they coming to you? Oh, it, it gets even better. Down in chapter, in the same chapter, uh, in verse 46, it says, In their footsteps we sent Jesus, son of Mary, fulfilling the Torah that preceded him. And we gave him the gospel wherein, wherein it is guidance and light, and confirming the Torah that preceded him, and guidance and counsels for the righteous. So let the people of the gospel rule according to what God revealed in it. <laughs> so, pretty much here, what we see is that Allah told the Muslims that the scriptures and the Torah are given to the Christians and the Jews by him, and they are authoritative, and nowhere in the Quran does it say that it has been changed or corrupted. So the challenge to the Muslim is, where in the Quran does it say that the, um, that the Bible has been corrupted? It doesn't exist. But there are, besides these two verses, there are many other verses that actually confirm the authority of the Bible. So if the Muslim is faithful to the Quran, he has to accept the Bible. And if he accepts the Bible, then he has no choice but to accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Okay, so let's move to the next objection, which is, how can God have a son? My response would be, why can't he have a son? What about him having a son that makes it not possible for God? Now, they'll probably say something like, you know, he can't have a son because he doesn't have a female companion. He doesn't have a wife, a girlfriend, a consort, whatever you want to call it. Implying that in order for God, their, their God, Allah, to have a son, he must have intercourse with a woman. Now, I know you think I'm crazy, but <laughs> this objection comes from Quran chapter 6, verses 101, where it says, Originator of the heaven and earth, how can he have a son when he never had a companion? So this is straight from their Quran. Well, here's a problem. A Muslim has no choice but to confirm the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ because no Muslim can be a Muslim unless he believes in the virgin birth of, of Jesus Christ through Mary. And this is according to the Quran, chapter 66, verse 12. So the question is, how can Mary give birth to a son with no companion, yet Allah can't? Is Mary better than Allah? I mean, she is, don't get me wrong. We know that. <laughs> but they don't, they don't think that. Of course they can't think that. That's blasphemous. So how can Allah cause a virgin to give birth without having sex, but God can't have a son without having sex? See the problem with that logic? Why can't God have a son? Maybe Allah can't have a son, but my God, he definitely can have a son, and he did have a son, and his name is Jesus Christ. Okay, next, they'll probably object to the Trinity. They'll say that, oh, you Christians worship three gods, and that's blasphemous. There's only one God. Now, 
Muslims assume that because we believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that it's three gods. Now, trust me, even if you try to explain what the Trinity is to them till your face turns blue, that it's three persons, three unique persons, but in one triune God, they'll still say something like, well, you're still worshiping three separate entities, and, you know, that, that's haram. The way I would explain it is like this. We have a God, we have his eternal word, and he has an eternal spirit. Now, Muslims believe nearly the same thing, that Allah has an eternal word and an eternal spirit. Now, keep in mind, this is not the same as a trinity in the Bible, because as I've mentioned, Allah is not God of the Bible. But the Quran does present a trinity of a sort. Well, that's what we mean as Christians, is that God exists with his eternal word and his eternal spirit. In Christianity, the word of God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. In Islam, their teaching says that the word of God became a book. It became the Quran. So the Quran is not divinely inspired like the Bible is. No, no, no. It is the word of God. Side note, this can easily be refuted because Muslims will say that the Quran is the word of God because Muhammad said so. And Muhammad can never be wrong because the Quran said so. It's circular. It's Anyway, so what Muslims will say about the Quran is what we say about Jesus. That his eternal word became a book. We say the eternal word became flesh. So if Allah can be one even though his eternal word became a book and lives eternally with his spirit, why can't my God be one if his eternal word became flesh and lives with his spirit? Seems like a double standard, doesn't it? Now usually, what happens is when you explain the Trinity to the Muslim, and even if they accept it, which they probably won't, um, they'll probably do what any Jehovah's Witness will do is, well, did Jesus ever claim to be God? This is pretty common objection by Muslims to attempt to convince you that Jesus never explicitly said the word, I am God. The simple answer is, no, Jesus never came out and just said those words exactly. But if that's the reason to reject the deity of Christ, that means the Quran is also wrong because in chapter 4, verse 171, um, Allah says that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is the word and is the spirit from him. So here's where it gets interesting. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, where it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So either the Muslim has to admit that the Quran is wrong and that Jesus is not the word of God, or they have to admit that the Bible does claim that Jesus is God, since the Quran says uh, Jesus is the Word of God, and the Bible says that the Word was God, they have to admit that Jesus is God. See how fun it is when you use their Quran to destroy their own worldview? <laughs> Which will then tie to the next objection. It's really not an objection, it's more of a sneaky way to try to convince Christians that Islam is the fullness of truth. They'll claim Muhammad was prophesied in the Bible. A Muslim will try to make this claim when they see that you may not know scripture fairly well or when you cornered them about all the above objections that we just, we just went through. So after you answer all these objections and you take them through the Bible that it's inspired word of God and that Jesus is God, they'll say, well, if you believe in the Bible, uh, you know, you should know that Muhammad was prophesied in Deuteronomy 18.18 18, where God says to Moses, I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brethren and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to all of them the things that I commanded him. And they also bring up John 14 where Jesus says, I will, you know, send a counselor. But wait a minute. Don't Muslims believe that the Bible is corrupt? This is the beauty of Muslim apologetics. Muhammad confirms the Bible is corrupt, but Muhammad fulfills a biblical criteria of prophethood. So a corrupt Bible confirms that Muhammad is a true prophet, then who confirms that the Bible is corrupt. Wow, masterful. I don't see why any of us are not Muslims at this point. But let's pretend for a moment that they don't believe the Bible is corrupt, even though they do. But let's pretend that you convince them that, okay, the Bible is not corrupt. They'll try to say that the, that the two verses that they just uh, quoted from Deuteronomy 18 and um, John 14 are not about Jesus, but they're actually about Muhammad. 
Now let's look at these verses carefully. From Deuteronomy, it says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. Who's them? Them, the Jews. That means God will send a Jewish man. I really don't think a Muslim will be too fond if you try to tell him that Muhammad is a Jew. Because, well, let's not go there. And then when it comes to John chapter 14, we all know the counselor Jesus speaks of is the Holy Spirit. Not because we're using logic and reason, but because it literally says it right in the, t- <laughs> in the text. <laughs> and John 14 says, But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. It literally says it. I don't know if they just take a sharpie and, you know, strike out the word Holy Spirit so that they can make this claim, or they just think we're stupid and we don't know how to read. But I can't believe that this is a common objection, that John chapter 14 is talking about Muhammad, even though it literally spells out the words Holy Spirit. At least if you're going to make a lie or a false claim, make sure that the text you're citing doesn't destroy your own logic. Now, if all of this fails, all these objections that I just mentioned, if all fails, they'll try to convince you that, ah, but it's okay, brother, you know, at the end of the day, you and I worship the same God, right? We worship the same God. Yalla, who cares? We have minor differences. As I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, Allah is not God. Now, the Quran and Muslims will claim that Allah is God of Abraham and of, Mo- and of Moses, but just because it makes that claim, or they make that claim, it doesn't make it true. Simply put, if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we can clearly see that our God is a triune God. He is the Father, He is the Son, He is the Holy Spirit. But if you tell a Muslim that God is a triune God, they will say that this is blasphemy. So that right there is enough to tell you that we do not believe or worship in the same God. Just because there are some similarities between Allah and Yahweh, the God of the Bible, it doesn't mean they are the same person. It's unfortunate, but the Western culture has been suckered into translating Allah into God. Well, if that's the case, why don't Muslims just translate the word Allah into God in the Quran in English? Why is it still written as Allah in English, in Spanish, in German, in all these languages? For example, a Muslim would say a thing called the Shahada, which is their profession of faith. And it goes like this, La ilaha illa Allah. There is no God but Allah. So if Allah means God, why not just say there is no God but God instead of there is no God but Allah? Because that would be an extremely silly thing to say. Because the claim that Allah is a word that means God is a silly claim to begin with. So my brothers and sisters, do not be afraid to stand up for Christianity, especially to a religion who sees us as a threat and see us as blasphemers and want to see us gone. The best way to learn how to defend against this satanic religion is to learn it. Yes, I said it's a satanic religion and I'm not afraid to say it. Go watch Muslims on YouTube and you're going to see the nasty, disgusting things that they say about Christians. I'm being extremely polite by calling the religion satanic. Now let me make something perfectly clear. I'm calling the religion satanic. Their belief system is satanic. I'm not calling for anyone to hate or attack a Muslim person. We must love them and treat them with the same respect that Jesus taught us to love our neighbor because they are still created by the same father that created you and I. And because of that, God has instilled in them that sense, that earning for seeking him, for seeking the truth. Now, just because they were misguided into believing in Islam, it doesn't make them evil. This is why I'm carefully choosing my words and saying that the religion is satanic and Muhammad is a false prophet. But because we're called to preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations, it is our duty to preach and defend the gospel and invite anyone to accept Jesus Christ into their life. But in order to defend our faith, we have to first understand and study the religion carefully. 
and we have to show them why their religion is wrong, why their ways are wrong, why it is an error, and that why Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and through Him only can they be saved. Now, maybe you don't have time to pick up the Quran and read it from cover to cover to study it, but you can definitely go online and find articles, watch some debates, watch some videos of people exposing Islam for the evil that it really is, and there is plenty of them out there. What I presented to you is just some very simple, quick ways to respond to Muslim critics of Christianity. So I'll wrap it up here, but I hope you don't stop here and you look up more common objections from Islam and other religions and how to respond to them. And I really hope you found this very helpful. Please, please, please keep praying for me as I'm praying for y'all. And please don't forget to check out our other podcasts uh, by ECRC. We have The Catholic Avengers by Jeff and Pilar. And we have The Invitation of Sisterhood by Vanessa, Adora, and Patrice. I love you all. Allah bless you all. Just kidding. God bless you all. And be salty. <laughs>